Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and thanks for joining me for another Bar Cart Foundations episode where we take a deep dive into one of the areas of cocktails and home bartending that you'll encounter again and again on your journeys into mixology. Today's subject is a concept called terroir, which is probably a word that many of you haven't encountered before, especially if you haven't spent a lot of time learning about wine. In brief, terroir refers to the effects that climate, landscape, and other living organisms can have on the overall character, flavor, or experience of wines and perhaps spirits. And really what this episode is designed to prepare you for is the next time you're visiting a winery or a distillery and the tour guide maybe drops this term on your group. Or maybe you'll be tasting a wine or spirit with somebody who really knows their stuff and suddenly they launch into some sort of monologue about why they prefer left bank Bordeaux to right bank Bordeaux or California Cabernets to Australian Cabernets. The goal isn't to make you an expert on terroir because that would take a lifetime of dedicated study. Instead, my hope is that you take two things away from this episode. One, I want you to develop a solid enough understanding of terroir to keep up with more experienced others during a tasting or a conversation. And two, I want you to have the tools to identify the effects of terroir on wines and spirits as you experiment with them on your own at home. But where are my manners? Before we jump into the complexities of this controversial concept, I think you should probably take the time to make yourself a drink. Today's featured cocktail is the Rusty Nail, and I selected this cocktail because it's a classic drink that can really show off the effects of terroir in the glass. To make a Rusty Nail, you'll need to pick up one sort of uncommon ingredient, and that is Drambouille, which is a scotch and honey liqueur. It's sweet and a bit herbal, and it pairs really well with scotch because of the shared malted barley base spirit, and that's spelled D-R-A-M. B-U-I-E, Drambui. The recipe for the Rusty Nail is pretty simple. All you got to do is add two ounces of blended scotch and a half ounce of Drambui to a, a mixing pint of some sort, and that's it. You just stir them together and then strain into a rocks glass over a single large cube after you've chilled them down in the stirring pint. This is basically just kind of like the Scottish version of the old-fashioned, and the reason I'm featuring this cocktail in the terroir episode is because the scotch you choose is going to have a huge effect on the outcome of the drink. The recipe calls for blended scotch, which is something like a Dewar's or a Johnny Walker or a Cuddy Sark. And these are all very similar standardized products that have almost no variation from batch to batch. That's kind of the point of blended scotch consistency. But if you start subbing in some single malts from different regions of Scotland, you'll very quickly start to see how the character of your rusty nail is going to change drastically from region to region, depending on the terroir and maturation styles employed by the various scotch houses. 
just like an old fashioned is an excellent way to test out like a new bottle of bourbon or rye. The rusty nail is definitely a nice way to ease your way into different bottles of scotch from different regions. So definitely tag us at modern bar cart on Instagram and Facebook. If you have the chance to make one of these bad boys and definitely let us know what you think. So now that you've got your drink in hand, let me tell you how we're going to look into the concept of terroir today. We'll start by defining the word as I like to do. Then we're going to examine the basic elements of terroir, soil, climate, microbiome, and winemaking techniques and culture. And in these situations, we're going to take case studies primarily from the winemaking world to exemplify how these factors can affect flavor. And then finally, we'll round out the episode by posing the question of if and how terroir can be applied to distilled spirits and cocktails. First time I ran into the word terroir, I was in my WSET2 course, which is an intermediate wine and spirits education and certification program that you can kind of think of almost like a baby sommelier course. And I was cruising around the internet looking for what definition to use when I was struck by the wording on Wikipedia of all places. And Wikipedia defines terroir as, quote, the set of all environmental factors that affect a crop's phenotype, including unique environmental contexts, farming practices, and a crop's specific growth habitat. And there's one interesting word in that definition I want to zoom in on for a second. And the word is phenotype. Now, if any of you listeners out there can think back to your high school or college biology courses, you'll recall that this word is part of a pair. It's a duo, phenotype and genotype. They go hand in hand, with the genotype referring to literally the cellular genetic makeup of an organism and the phenotype referring to the big picture accumulated outcomes of each set of genetic realities. In humans, this can mean the difference between brown or blue eyes or in the original Mendelian genetic experiments, the difference between green and yellow peas. And there's a whole ton of different genetic traits out there that can result in different physical realities. So the genotype is like the code that makes things run, and the phenotype of an organism is the result of all the little changes and realities that exist at the chemical building blocks level. And if you're Thinking that this is starting to sound a lot like the age-old nature versus nurture debate, you're kind of right. Consider this. Just because you have a gene that predisposes you to cancer doesn't mean that that gene is being expressed at the moment. In many cases, there's a set of conditions that must exist for that switch to be flipped and for that potential to become a reality. The same is true for the crops that we use to make wine and spirits. Just because a grape could taste a certain way doesn't mean that it will. What if there's a drought? What if there's 20% less sunlight than average this growing season? These and many other realities can affect the chemical composition of the end crop, which in turn is definitely going to affect the flavor, especially in wines and fermented beverages. This is the concept of terroir. And just like the expression of a human phenotype is a specific biological reality like red hair or sickle cell anemia, the expression of a grape or barley phenotype is certain chemical flavor realities like acidity or sweetness or earthiness. Think of it like this. You've got a particular grape growing on a particular vine 
on a particular south-facing hillside in a particular vineyard in a particular region of a particular country in a particular latitude of the world. Just like you and me, that grape has DNA. And depending on how things shake out during that grape's lifespan, it could end up turning out any number of different ways, just like your life could end up turning out any number of different ways. Some of the factors that affect a grape are relatively consistent, right? Like soil, overall climate, the microbiome, and human practices that have been the same for decades or centuries. Those are pretty consistent. But some factors are a bit harder to control, like more specific weather events, forest fires or hailstorms, for example. Or what about that global warming thing that all of a sudden is kind of shaking up the way we're experiencing weather all around the world? This is one of the reasons why people are intrigued by terroir, especially in the wine world. Because if you put in the time, you can learn some of the easier terroir-related traits to identify, and then start working your way into the nuances. And for people who really like to nerd out and dive deep into their hobbies, there's almost a limitless number of nuances that can be encountered. That's why people build entire careers in this industry by developing a specific type of knowledge. So what are some of those big picture traits that you can start to identify in your wines and spirits that will impress your friends? Let's start by talking about climate. That's a pretty simple one to begin with. If you've ever looked into planting a particular type of flower or shrub in your yard or garden, usually there's some specs you need to look into. Is this a sun-loving plant or a shade-loving plant? How much water does it need to flourish? What about drainage? What about fertilizer? The same goes for grapes, as well as for base grains and fruits used in distilling. To get a good output, you need to consider the conditions. Now, different types of grapes are referred to as varietals, and different varietals are more suited to growing in different climates. That's why you see Cabernet Sauvignon grapes thriving in warm, dry places like Napa Valley in Australia, and Pinot Noir grapes thriving in cooler climates like Washington State and New Zealand. So that's the biggest climate consideration. I live here. The climate tends to be this way. What grapes are going to grow best? Now, that's a pretty easy set of questions to answer, and that's why these grape regions tend to crop up based around the climate conditions that exist there. But there's also like a decent amount of flexibility in that, right? Just because Pinot Noir tends to grow best in cooler climates doesn't mean you can't grow it in a more moderate climate like Sonoma, for example. And this is where things get interesting. And you can start to pick out the differences between a Sonoma Pinot Noir versus a Washington State Pinot Noir and ascribe many of those differences to climate. In general, and we're just talking about grapes here, grapes grown in a hot climate tend to have higher alcohol, fuller body, more tannins, and less acidity, whereas grapes grown in cooler climates tend to display lower alcohol, lighter body, less tannins, and more acidity. And just a quick sidebar here, if you're not familiar with the term tannins, this basically refers to the woody or astringent notes you get in a wine or spirit. Think about drinking a really strong black tea. You know how it kind of dries out your mouth and makes it a little, there's like some texture going on in the palate? That's the experience of tannins. So knowing all this, you could, in theory, take two bottles of wine made using the exact same grape varietal, but grown in two different climates 
and perceive a vastly different flavor experience between the two. Sommeliers and other wine professionals at high levels of certification must be able to identify these characteristics without seeing the bottle in a process called a blind tasting. And it's actually a part of the test. You fail the blind tasting, you can't be a psalm. That just goes to show how serious people are about identifying these nuances generated by terroir. Now let's talk about soil. Growing up, I remember there were a lot of pine trees surrounding my yard, and the drop needles from these trees made the composition of the soil fairly acidic. So when my mom wanted to plant flowers, they had to be able to thrive with at least partial shade, right, pine trees, and they also kind of needed to be well suited to acidic soil. So we ended up with a lot of rhododendrons and azaleas, which are very hardy in acidic soil and don't need full sun. Soil also has a major effect on the outcome of the grapes and kind of has sort of a reciprocal effect on certain aspects of climate as well, which we'll get into in just a second here. Different types of soil tend to drain differently, which has a direct effect on how much water the grapevines have access to. And then there's the actual chemical makeup of the soil, which impacts what types of minerals are going to be absorbed by the grapes and then correspondingly incorporated into the flavor profile of the end product, the wine. Sometimes you'll hear more advanced wine tasters give tasting notes like chalky, graphite, mineral, even petrol. For example, South Africa has a lot of granite in the soil, which has a couple of different effects. First of all, it absorbs a lot of heat, which reduces acidity in the wine. Remember, those hot climate wines have uh, kind of like lower acid. And then it also yields flavor characteristics that taste like wet stone or concrete in some instances. And to put it in context, wet stone and concrete aren't criticisms. There's a lot of crazy tasting notes out there like forest floor or mushroomy or even barnyard. And this doesn't mean that the wine tastes like a mushroom or smells like manure. It's just a small aspect of the overall flavor experience of the wine. The final major way that soil, or I suppose geology in general, can impact the outcome of the wine is called exposure, which simply means how much sun the grapes get. South-facing hillsides tend to be ideal, producing the greatest amount of sunlight, However, not every vineyard has exclusively south-facing slopes. This affects the end product. I think the most popular example of soil differences affecting flavor outcome is the case of left bank versus right bank Bordeaux wine. The premium wine-producing region of Bordeaux is located pretty close to the Atlantic Ocean on the Gironde River, which is actually an estuary, a place where a river meets an ocean, basically. So it's actually quasi-tidal, especially closer to the mouth of the Gironde. One thing to remember is that most Bordeaux red wines are blends, and the question of flavor depends largely on what percentage of Cabernet Sauvignon and what percentage of Merlot are in that given bottle of Bordeaux. So if you hear the word Bordeaux, you know that there's some Cab and some Merlot. The question is, What's the percentage? Is it going to be a cab-driven or a Merlot-driven blend? There are some other varietals in Bordeaux as well used to kind of supplement these, but those are the two big ones. Geologically speaking, on 
the left bank of the Gironde, you have really gravelly soil with deep, deep limestone deposits that drive the roots of the grapevines really deep into the soil, searching for water. And the wines of the left bank, correspondingly, are very Cabernet-driven. This is a great setting for Cabernet Sauvignon wine or grapes. Then on the right bank, you've got more available limestone, right? So the limestone's a little bit closer to the surface and a lot more clay in the soil. And these wines tend to emphasize Merlot over Cabernet Sauvignon, making them softer, rounder, a little bit more drinkable early in their lifespan. Whereas the wines from the left bank, you're going to see people aging for decades and decades. I don't want to turn this into our intro to French wine episode, so I'm going to let it drop there. But the important thing to take away here, highlighted by the case study of left versus right bank Bordeaux, is that soil is important. One other really fascinating aspect of terroir is how the microorganisms in a given area interact with the grapes. And this is actually an emerging field of inquiry in the wine world as we get better technology and have more access to analyzing these microorganisms. We're kind of coming up with new ways to test theories about this. And I'm going to link to a really cool set of studies in the show notes that aim to connect the common microorganisms in a given region with the primary flavors of those wines. But microbiome extends also to a critical area overlap between wine, beer, and spirits. And that overlap is yeast. All alcohol is the result of fermentation that is kicked off by yeast, which convert sugar into alcohol. For wine and beer, that's where it stops. But with spirits, distillers then take that kind of low alcohol brew and then further process it to transform it into higher proof spirits. Like with most microorganisms, there are different strains of yeast and brewers, winemakers, and distillers all have their favorites. I don't pretend to know very much about this at all, but I can tell you that picking your yeast is an important decision because once you let that yeast loose in your production facility, it's there. You're not getting rid of it, and it's going to affect all your brewing or distilling or winemaking projects for perpetuity. One really excellent case study that reveals the importance of yeast is the fairly recent trend involving sour beers. There's a particular strain of yeast called Brettanomyces, or Brett for short, and this yeast produces a really distinct, sour, kind of funky flavor. But a lot of brewers who want to experiment with this strain are forced to build completely separate facilities so that it, they don't risk inoculating their clean beers with this very funky, wild, sour flavor. One final anecdote I'll add about microbiome is an experience I had while visiting Burgundy, which is one of the premium wine producing regions in central France, known for its stunning Pinot Noirs. And I remember being on a tour of one of the wine cellars there and looking up to discover that the ceiling of the place was completely coated with thick, fuzzy, black mold. And I got freaked out for a second. I was like, black mold, I shouldn't be breathing this. So I asked our tour guide and he said it was completely harmless uh, it wasn't like the black mold that you see people getting their homes foreclosed about. It was a completely different type of organism. And it did serve to kind of insulate the cellar, and it undoubtedly has some effect on the other aspects of the winemaking process that take place in that winery. And even if you can't really study or identify them, 
they're there. You know that that mold is just affecting things and it's unique to that little corner of the world. Just goes to show how the little bugs and fungi that you got chilling in your little part of this earth can have major impact on the character of the beer, wine, or spirits you produce. One final and crucial aspect of terroir I want to touch on here involves the decisions that humans make when it comes to growing or harvesting the crops. Notice that I'm drawing the line kind of at growing and harvesting as opposed to the actual winemaking techniques because that's where terroir stops and kind of like process begins, if that makes any sense. And we'll touch on this in a little bit. But returning to growing and harvesting, grapes tend to grow in clusters, right? That's how it works. If you think about it, the more clusters there are on a given vine, the less resources in terms of photosynthesis and nutrients there are for that vine to share between those various clusters. So if you're a grape grower who's concerned with flavor more so than volume, which tends to be the case in these more premium wine places like Burgundy, Champagne, Bordeaux, Napa, then it makes sense that you'd want to carefully control the number of clusters on your vines so that you can ensure optimal flavor in those grapes. That's why a lot of, of winemakers prune their vines to achieve a specific output, both in terms of volume and flavor quality. And then there's, of course, the decision of when to harvest at the other end. At what point are the grapes perfect? Maybe last year it was September 30th, but maybe this year it's going to be October 5th. Maybe the south slope is going to be ripe a week before the southeast slope. And then there's the case of ice wine, where the grapes are allowed to freeze just once right before being harvested and pressed, which results in a sweeter product because the water is in a solid form, right? It's ice, and it can be separated out, which leaves a lot of very sweet juice. But if you mess up that very technical harvesting method, or if you're just off by one or two degrees when you harvest, you could very easily find yourself looking at an entire year's labor down the drain, which is obviously devastating. So you can see how certain decisions made while the grapes are growing and when you're going to harvest them really make a big impact on the end product. I want to round out the wine-driven part of this episode by giving you a case study that shows how all these aspects of terroir can work together. What follows is the story of Sauterne, a French dessert wine that's only grown in a small sub-region in Bordeaux. Remember how earlier I mentioned that there's a right and a left bank of Bordeaux and they're located on either side of the Gironde estuary? Well, if you follow that body of water upstream away from the coast, it actually splits into two separate rivers, the Garonne and the Dordogne. And these kind of veer off in different directions, almost like legs of the Gironde. Then, if you take that left leg called the Garonne, you follow that river even farther upstream, you'll encounter a very cold little tributary called the Ciron River. And it's here that our story takes place. Sauternes wine is made using the Semillon grape, which is a native white grape varietal that has a rich flavor and one very special attribute when it occurs in this particular landscape. In late September, 
when temperatures begin to fluctuate a little bit more widely than they do in summer, morning mists are generated overnight as the warm air that is absorbed by the soil meets the cool microclimate generated by that very, very cold Ciron River. These mists create an ideal climate for the formation of a special fungus called Botrytis cinerea, also known as noble rot. And what happens is during the cool, damp mornings, when that fog blankets the vineyards, the noble rot eats away at the skin of the semillon grapes, leaving tiny perforations in the skin. But before it can get to the flesh and eat that away, the warm sun burns off the mist and the water in the ripe grapes evaporates, making like somewhere between a raisin and a grape, resulting in more sugar in the harvest, right? There's less water. Percentage-wise, there's going to be more sugar. The grapes are harvested at the perfect stage of rot, and then they're fermented, and the result is a sweet, syrupy dessert wine with relatively low alcohol due to the high residual sugar content. Because of the low output and the small growing region, Sauternes are some of the most expensive wines in the world, and they're extremely well-suited to aging. You can age them for decades and decades and decades, up to a century I've seen. I've had a few in my time, and it's always an incredibly decadent treat to be able to break out a bottle of Sauternes, especially knowing the truly unique set of terroir features that make it possible, from the microbiome to the coldness of the river, to the particular soil that does a great job absorbing that sunlight. It's just a really cool case study in terroir. Now comes the big question for us here in the cocktail world. Can terroir apply to spirits and cocktails? Big breath here because this is a fairly contentious topic, and here's why. A lot of people are going to argue that the process of distillation saps a lot of the unique character out of a particular base grain. So let's say you're using a specific type of corn that's really unique to your region and has a really special flavor character. Many people are going to claim that distillation takes away from that uniqueness or at least makes it harder to perceive. I think that's fair. And I think that's why terroir is easiest in many cases to perceive in wine because Distillation just isn't part of the picture. You've got a lot more of the original chemical makeup of the product still present if all you're doing is fermenting it. And then there's the question of barrel aging and other flavor-enhancing techniques in certain spirits. How are you going to be able to pick out the character of the barley in a particular single malt scotch, for example, if you've suffocated that barley with stinky peat smoke, distilled it to an extremely high proof, watered it down, then stuck it in a charred used bourbon barrel to age for 10 to 18 years in the salty sea air. I think this is also a great point, because logically, the more processing you do on the back end, the less of the original character of the base grain or fruit is going to be left. So what do we do here as people who want to appreciate terroir in the spirits and cocktail world? What happens when you're touring a distillery or doing a tasting and some master blender or distiller or bartender starts talking about the terroir of a specific spirit? I think the best answer is to avoid making hard judgments before you've taken the time to listen and to taste. Because ultimately, terroir is a sliding scale. With some products, it's going to make a huge difference. And in some others, it's barely going to be a factor at all. 
Some of the questions you can ask that are going to help you understand the role that terroir has in a given spirit include, what is the mash bill of this product? I.e., if it's a vodka, what's the base grain? If it's a bourbon, what percentage of corn does it have relative to other grains? And how might that affect the flavor? A mash bill isn't really a terroir, but sometimes there are regional differences that can start to look like terroir. For example, the traditional difference between Pennsylvania-style rye whiskey and Maryland-style rye whiskey is that Pennsylvania distillers didn't add corn, and Maryland distillers did. The result is two very different types of products, and the driving force has more to do with human preference than it does with soil or climate of any type. Another question you can ask is, how was this spirit flavored or aged? How charred was the barrel? Was it finished in a brandy or sherry cask? Was it infused with botanicals? Was it sweetened? All of these things are going to add an additional layer on top of the existing terroir attributes that you'd be able to ascertain in that spirit and make it a little bit harder for you to pick those things out. And a final question you might consider is how this product is situated relative to its historical ancestors, the traditional methods of production. Is it cutting against historical trends, trying to do something new? Or is it maybe trying to resurrect a style that was once popular but has since vanished? Is it trying to jump on a popular bandwagon like sour beer? Or is there some aspect of real originality in this product? Is it just kind of trying to do its own unexpected thing? All of these questions, when it comes to spirits, really require deep listening to the story of the spirit and the process that brought it from grain to glass or from fruit to glass. So instead of memorizing wine regions and soil composition charts and which years produced great crops in the wine world, with spirits, you're spending your time with the distiller and the process and the history and the conversation that exists between what you're drinking and everything that came before it. Which isn't exactly terroir, but it isn't exactly not. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's really neat that the spirits we use in our cocktails are actually the result of sun and rain and soil and human intention and creativity and toil. That's why I enjoy making drinks with spirits that have a cool story and that interact somehow with the ingredients and the people that compose them. I think it enhances the intellectual and aesthetic pleasure I get from making a cocktail, that knowing where it comes from and how it's made. So I'd encourage you to take the time to learn about the chemical and biological forces at work behind the scenes in your wine, beer, and spirits, because the more you understand, what you're drinking, the more you'll savor it. Whether you're contemplating the terroir in a silky glass of inky purple right bank Bordeaux or a rusty nail made with a briny Eiley single malt, I wish you happy drinking. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. 
The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with production and editing assistance by Samantha Reed and a little bit of wine and terroir knowledge by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.